and we're live. Christy, first off, thanks for meeting me here and agreeing to do this. Before we started the recording, what I said I was going to do was I was going to outline my understanding of trade unionism as best I could, and then you might be able to tell me what I got right, what I got wrong, and what I missed out, basically. So my first interaction with trade unionism would have been probably in first year in school. We learned a little bit about it in history. I would have learned about a guy called Jim Larkin, who was a man of the people and a man of the worker. And my understanding of it at the time was he stood up for the little guy. And because he was so good at what he did, there's a statue of him on O'Connell Street now. I have some vague recollection of trade unionism and the 1916 rising and republicanism generally. There's some connection there with socialism. And I'm running out of things that I know or can say about trade unionism. Sorry, there's two other things. So first off, generally speaking, it was in relation to unifying workers and stand and getting them to stand be it getting them to a position whereby they could stand up to them for themselves in front of capitalists basically big business so that was the kind of first year in school intro- introduction and then i went out into the world and i worked in sales and i would have been a an out and out capitalist myself for a, a good period mad into making money mad into nice cars and, and all that crack mm. and during that period of my life I would have seen trade unionism as the people who caused strikes, the people who closed factories, the people that just were upsetting the apple cart, basically. And they seemed incapable of negotiating because any time I ever heard of them mentioned on the news, it was talks have collapsed or the deadline has been extended and they're at loggerheads. And there was just this sense that they were troublemakers, basically. And that is the extent of my knowledge of trade unionism. Now, the final point that I'd make is, as per an understanding that is, I would argue that it's probably a touch above most people's. And that's not saying a whole pile for working class people generally. So, as I said at the outset, thanks for coming along. And can you tell me what I got right, what I got wrong, and maybe the important things that I'm missing? Well, Fran, look, I'm delighted to get this opportunity. Um... I'm a retired official at this stage, having retired in in 2013. Incidentally, 100 years after the very uh, trade union activists you were speaking about, Jim Larkin and James Connolly, and the 1913 lockout, which at that particular time would have been when trade unions, I suppose, took on the first major confrontation with employers um, to do with actually getting recognised to be represented by a trade union. And believe it or not, that struggle still goes on today. We do not have uh, the legal right in law for workers to be represented by a trade union uh, of their choice and to be represented collectively uh, as a group of workers. That law has has still not been uh, put on the statute book and that struggle still goes on all, all those years since. So it's interesting you say that uh, your school years would have would have given you some introduction to trade unionism um, because unions would always be advocating that it should be part of the curriculum. 
it should be part of education. Uh, it's it's something that will uh, be in front of you uh, as a worker in the world of work. Um, and uh, trade unions are a necessity for there to be a balance for working working people, working people and their families, and some very basic uh, needs that workers would want and would aspire to. Uh, and trade unions is the vehicle, I would say, uh, that, that gives workers, as you have explained it, some kind of rights, some kind of protection, some kind of equality, uh, some kind of security, a, a way of getting advice about what's right uh, and what they should be expecting. Uh, trade unions have made mistakes um, throughout the decades. I'd like to think we have learned a lot and trade unionism today is much different than it was years ago. And if you think about it, there's not so much about strikes anymore uh, or long disputes or disputes that have caused massive uh, destruction and actually, you know, uh, left people without jobs because of what the unions did and didn't do. Uh, that era, thankfully, uh, is behind us uh, in many ways. But it's like everything else. If you don't, if there's something that you're you're doing and you believe in and you want it to grow and live on, you have to make mistakes to learn from them mistakes. And I do believe we've done uh, done a lot in that regard to be credible, uh, to be convincing, and that really what we are setting out to give workers uh, and their families and society as a whole, uh, you know, values for the future and a, a level of decency and a refusal to be greedy uh, and and uh, that uh, it's fairness and the employer who who's fair has nothing to fear because an employer who will represent uh, and, and who will allow workers to be represented in their workplace, uh, it's about communications, it's about talking, it's about sharing uh, the results of labour, which is obviously... Um, something that the employer uh, gets out of it uh, for their livelihood and for the growth of their business, but also are sharing with workers in a very fair way what workers are helping them to achieve and what they're employed to achieve. So for me, um, my journey down this road of trade unionism started at a very young age. You know, um, my parents were... Uh, married in 1950, I was born in 1952, and um, my my dad was a farm labourer. Um, my mam worked as a waitress for a period. Um, I had a, one sister uh, who was born in 1954. Um, of course, my mam and dad are no longer with us. Uh, as is no longer my sister with us, she died quite young in life. 
Um, but um, yeah, I uh, I was born uh, in in Randallstown, uh, which is in Orlestown, Kilberry, parish of County Mead, and the river that flowed across the road uh, was the dividing line between we being in Navan Parish as against being in Kilberry Oriston Parish. Um, so my dad, um, funnily enough, had an interest in unions and seen a relevance in them and always said to me, uh, from when I could understand what he was saying, that you might never need a trade union, but you should always be in one because you never know the day when you want to be supported and you want to be uh, protected and you want advice. So I suppose that influenced me thinking very early on. And um, he was himself uh, one time a hotel porter in the Arbine Hotel here in Navan. And uh, he joined the trade union uh, that particular time and started the union in that hotel and was actually sacked for doing so. But ultimately, he was uh, re-engaged and taken back on. Because one thing about my dad, he was always a great worker. You could never fault his work or his enthusiasm for work and what he would give to any employer. Uh, But the employer wasn't ready for uh, the world union or for the workers getting organised. So he, as many employers do, they threaten you with the very thing you need, which is your your way of living and a job. Uh, it didn't work. The hotel did become organised. It still is organised. Um, so uh, he demonstrated to me what he was telling me himself uh, uh, in, in a real way. So when my turn came, I went to primary school and I was... My first job was a shop assistant in a hardware shop here in Avon where the AIB bank is now. It was known as Connolly Brothers. And I worked, I started there, went into uh, work, summer work. Um, and I was just, my 14th birthday would have been that November. And uh, I was to go back to secondary school and it never happened. And I stayed on and I worked there from 1966 to 1975. And I was only a short number of months in the employment when I joined the Irish Union of Distributed Workers and Clerks and um, actually became an activist uh, in that union, organised other shop workers into the union. Um, so I took an active role from a very a very early age. And what drew you, like you were only, what, 14 only 14 at that stage, yeah. And what drew you towards joining it in the first place? I mean, I would have thought 14-year-olds at the time were you know, playing football or throwing yeah. stones into rivers or whatever <laughs> you do, you know. Well, I, I did play a bit of hurling, all right. Uh, I wasn't very good at the football, but with a bit of a stick in my hand, I was a different guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so shop workers in Navan were, were uh, in unions, uh, so the union was there before I started, if you know what I mean. Uh, I didn't start the union, but the okay, union so was in, there. in the shop. It was there for in. me to join. Okay. And I, without any hesitancy, once I was approached, would I join the union? And uh, uh, I had no hesitancy, you know, in doing so. And 
by the time I was 16, I was attending union meetings uh, when they were called. I was putting my hand up. I was speaking up. And it just seemed to come natural to me that you, you spoke up and you gave your view and you gave your, your opinion and you were encouraged to do so. Uh, Navan was a trade union town. Uh, always known as a trade union town. Uh, if you look at the traditional industries in Navan, it was textiles, it was furniture. Um, and uh, from a very early uh, decade of the union movement in Ireland, uh, Navan just seemed to uh, adopt it and take it on board and it was the done thing and uh, it was unusual not to be in a trade union if you were in the furniture trade or if you were in uh, Navan carpets. Then textiles was part of it. Uh, footwear was produced in, in, in Kells. And I suppose in the era I was growing up in, um, the well-known um, struggle by furniture workers uh, where their employment closed down, uh, jobs were lost, and upsprung out of the ashes, Cranach Co-op, where the workers, through their trade union, uh, came together and formed a cooperative and uh, registered as a um, in, under the legislation of friendly societies and um, created a shareholding. And uh, only an hour from Dublin was born uh, by the advertisements for Cranach Co-op. Very and good. it 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 kept those workers and their families supported for between 30 and 40 years. And um, so they, th- that was workers proving that if given the opportunity, they could be business-like and they could think business-like and they could produce and they could market and uh, they could serve the community. So there was a lot of values in that for a lot of people. Um, so it was a great, it was a great, um, it was a great education for me. Uh, so young in life, you know, to see what the trade union movement uh, could do. Um, so it, uh, I was there on then until seventy five, and. Tara Mines, of course, uh, came came on on the scene. And so, you were in Cronach, the co-op, till seventy five, or the union till seventy five. I was in. I was a shop assistant. Yes. In in a hardware shop, in the centre of the town called Conley Brothers, where the AIB Bank is now. Yes. And uh, so I worked. That was my first job, and that lasted me uh, eight nine years. And uh, pay was low in, you know, as a shop assistant. Uh, and um, even though it was unionised, it was a low-paying job. Um, and you you would find it very, very difficult, you know, to uh, become adult and to, you know, um, eventually maybe get married and uh, rear a family. On that wage. On that kind of wage yes. at that particular time. Um, I was getting two pounds and ten shillings a week. Jesus. <laughs> and and the working week was 42 hours. And the longest day of the week was on a Saturday. 
where you walked till 9pm. And you walked every Saturday. You didn't get every second Saturday off, you know, but it was a 42-hour week. Now we look at 39-hour weeks and we look at 35-hour weeks. And if you look at how they're now talking about COVID, you know, uh, people will now have the opportunity to uh, spend some of the time working from home. Uh, and the working week, you know, is rotates. And uh, you certainly have your weekends off. Um, there's such a thing as holidays and holiday pay uh, over time. Um, health and safety comes into it. Uh, where workers, you know, work in a far healthier and safer environment than would have been the case years and years ago, uh, you know. Um, Pre- sorry to cut across you, but presumably all those advancements, so let's say a minimum wage, holiday pay, overtime, um, and whatever else you outlined there, that presumably wasn't brought about by the business owners themselves. Oh, no. Obviously no, enough. No. That's, <laughs> that's the journey, and that's how uh, trade unions have progressed uh, what workers can expect to get uh, and expect to be, uh, how they can expect to be treated uh, in in the world of work today. Um, Like, that's how far the journey has come. Um, But an awful lot of people don't enjoy that still. There's an awful lot of people being exploited. There's an awful lot of people being discriminated against. Uh, The world of work isn't, uh, the kind of experience for many that you and I might take for granted uh, or that many people take for granted um, because exploitation is out there. Um, many employers in in Ireland and the world over don't tolerate unions. Uh, but yet, they'll be represented and they'll have professional representation and they'll have professional advice but if a worker decides to do that for themselves through a trade union, that, in many instances, is resisted in in a very um, forthright way, very threatening way. And, of course, the one thing uh, that you can threaten uh, any employee with is their job. So the fear factor is, is very much uh, out there in terms of people speaking up in terms of people looking to uh, make their point or have a point of view, many employers still would expect you to come in from the neck down. Leave your head at home, leave your brain at home. We know it all and we'll tell you. You don't tell us. And as for your opinion, it really doesn't matter because you just do what you're told. So they're the two extremes. Uh, But I think it's worth you and I at least saying that them two extremes... Uh, are still there. Uh, you have some employers, and they're very decent, and they're very fair, and you get you get you'll be treated with respect, and they will res- expect respect back. Uh, do a good, uh, conscientious day's work, week's work, and what the contract of employment says, or what the deal is, it's honoured. But that's not. That's not that's not commonplace, and it's not certainly uh, automatic, and and to be expected. Um, I have to say, uh, Fran, that I'm now sixty nine, 
And um, I think when you get to that age, something must happen because I've been reflecting on my life, uh, both my working life and uh, my journey of life. And, you know, um, what I have been offered passing through this journey. And I'm very lucky. And it's good to recognise when you're lucky. It's good to recognise when uh, what a lot of people aspire to and never realise that you actually have realised an awful lot of those things. Uh, I've never been unemployed. I've never suffered the insecurity of not having a job or the insecurity of my job, will it be there next week? So I know how lucky I am because of that. Um, The other thing is, I suppose, health. One's health is crucial. I have been seriously lucky with my health uh, throughout my life. I did have uh, a period where I I dealt with uh, the dark clouds and depression and naturally enough by the job that I choose uh, to do for uh, full time for many years it had its stresses it had its anxiousness and the peculiar thing about it was most of it was stress and anxiousness about the people that you were representing yes and that you wanted to do a good job for and you wanted to be fair with them and honest with them. And you had many times to tell them not what they wanted to hear. But you you needed to level with them. Um, and you needed to be fair about what could be achieved. And how long it might take to achieve it. Um, and I know that in your introduction you, you talked about, uh, you know, Unions being identified with confrontation and strikes and closures and um, uh, friction and um, all of that. And it's fair to say that in terms of strikes, it's the last resort. It should be the last resort. Everything else should be tried before... You ask anybody to make a, make a sacrifice that they're going to down tools and literally walk out of the job uh, without necessarily knowing that, you know, that job will be there to go back to when some kind of settlement is reached. Because that's not for certain. So it's a big, big decision to lead workers in, in that kind of direction. Uh, some workers, you know, over the years would have seen strikes as the first uh, leverage and the first act to do and we'll show the employer. But you have to be far more pragmatic about uh, how you represent yourself and how you uh, speak up and uh, the actions that you take because it's not just about the individual, it's about everybody else around you. Yes, all all the individuals. All the individuals (laughs) and all the families. Yes, and the community that you that that's around you, uh, and no strike was ever won without uh, solidarity, um, and no cause that was worthwhile was ever won without solidarity. Uh, what unions do is that they they create um, 
the opportunity to have a voice to create the opportunity out of collective action because we all are very vulnerable as individuals but when we come collectively together as a grouping um, uh, with, an, with an objective to achieve that is uh, genuine um, and is reasonable uh, most people out there who's not directly affected to it by it give you goodwill and without that goodwill you know um, and support uh, even if it's only you know um, during strikes you will see uh, people coming with the sandwiches and the teas and the basics to help you survive long hours on a picket um, you know they're, they're they're the kind of solidarity acts that you know instill confidence in workers to see it through, um, and believe in themselves that they're onto something here that other people see is is fair is only fair and just because it's about fairness and it's about justice, it's about respect. Um, I think. You know the the world is riddled with uh, inequality, riddled with discrimination, um, riddled with greed, and that it, it, it's 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 an absolute cancer in itself, in terms of how it's destroying uh, society, uh, and far 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 beyond our shores. Um, so every little turn, corner we turn and we make a difference, that's the change that we need to build on and increase every day we get up, every day we, we, we get the opportunity to open our eyes and to reflect uh, on, on, on what's happening around us. Um, so I suppose... Um, when I left the um, being a shop worker, um, I took up employment in, in, in the mines here in Navan. Um, and I tried to become a miner. And uh, of course, I didn't know it, but I had claustrophobia. Oh, wow. Not, not great down the mine. <laughs> no, it's a black place down there with a, a light on your helmet. But uh, so after a month, my my sleeping and my my eating habits and how I felt inside my stomach, I was in a knot. And I remember going to my doctor and sort of saying, look, is this the shift work? Is it, will it go away? And he chatted over with me, you know, on the different things and how, of how I was feeling and... Uh, just the experience generally and uh, he re- he he had me realize I had claustrophobia and so I had to get up out of that dark hole now for an awful lot of people it's been a, a livelihood of of decades um their families have been uh, educated and reared and uh, their families again you know it's so there's a turnover all of the time 
um, it's supported the county, I suppose, and the country at large uh, with uh, resources that we wouldn't otherwise have. It's a natural resource under the ground. Um, and um, at, at its height, between the construction industry and the the mine itself, it, the height of employment was 1,010 people. In Directly one, employed in the mines? In, in one place. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's a great success story. Um, we had, when you talk about strikes, we had mother and father strikes down there. Uh, had to have them um, uh, to, I suppose, uh, set the standards. And, uh, But in fairness, you know, once uh, an agreement was struck between the employer and the unions, and it was more than one union because you had craftsmen and you had miners and you had mill operatives and you had supervisors and you had administrative staff, so you had all the grades of different grades of workers uh, uh, in the mine and still have. And they're all represented by, you know, unions who kind of specialise in particular lines of representation. So the union that I joined after I left, uh, after I left uh, the shop work, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, that to this day is my union or our union. Um I joined that union in 1976, 1975. And uh, initially I was on the construction site. And so all the the on-site facilities were all being built. So you had, um, and that operated between 1975 and 1978, maybe into 1979. Um, So I left the construction site to take up a job directly with Tara Mines. Uh, Before that, I was working with H.A. O'Neill's, who had uh, done all the pipe fitting work uh, on site and on the ground. And um, so I, I, I took, put my toe in the water, and went down the dark hole. And as I say, after a month, I knew it wasn't for me, couldn't be for me. And uh, so I was taken back on in the construction site, continued to work there, and then got the opportunity to go and be uh, involved in the milling of the ore, which actually separates from the rock, the lead and zinc. Yes. And um, so I started that particular employment in 77, done my training and the opportunity that was to shape my life thereafter came forward where there was a full-time union position on offer with the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. Andy Connolly, who I fondly remember, um, a great colleague, a great friend, taught me most of what I know about unions and and the values of unions and um, he, um, him and I uh, teamed up in 1978. The union hired me in 1978, in March of 78, as a full-time official. So I was, an, Andy was the branch secretary and I was the assistant branch secretary here in Mead. And uh, we didn't have our own premises. We had our premises in uh, rented off the Irish National Foresters 
which is another uh, workers' organisation that's renowned worldwide. So they had uh, um, a social hall and premises for their activities, and we rented off them for a couple of years until we eventually built our own uh, full-time centre, the Dan Shaw Centre, uh, on the Commons Road. So, um, yeah, I know I began my full-time work as a union official, and it took me right up to my retirement um, in 2013. Can you lay out a little of the day-to-day of that? Because from what's appearing in my mind's eye is some form of almost like a courtroom setting whereby there's some form of an official acting as an ombudsman of sorts between a company who wants to keep doing what they're doing and the employee or employees who aren't happy with whatever the situation is and you're representing them. So was that was that your role on a day-to-day basis? Maybe not on a day-to-day basis, but that conceptualisation that I just outlined there, is that anywhere near what it is that you actually do or did? Well, as a union official, you know... Uh you formed sections of the union in in employments and you approached workers about their interest in joining the union and what the union and what the union role would be uh, on their behalf and with them because the union official is not the union it's the union members that are at the union and you empower them uh, to to have discussions about issues uh, at work and around work and regarding their conditions of employment. Uh, anything from the hourly rate of pay to uh, unsocial allowance for, for shift working to what the overtime rates will be to what what the break times will be to uh, canteen facilities to health and safety to having a policy on uh, bullying and harassment in the workplace and how that's dealt with when it when it surfaces or when it appears, uh, right down to you know the basic facilities in the employment, um, washing facilities, canteen facilities, uh, your protective clothing, and organising a structure where there's a forum for communication with the employer on a reasonably regular basis as needed. And that even down to the workers even having a notice board in the factory, which would uh, let them know uh, different things that the union is doing, um, different uh, events that are occurring that they may wish to attend, um how they go about electing their own representatives that the full-time union official supports, known as shop stewards. Uh, So all of them structures are what we coordinate and we organise and bring about in a place that becomes unionised. Often for workers, the biggest challenge for them when when they do decide to join a union is actually... Uh, getting to the point where they're 
employer will tolerate that, will accept it for what it is, and will, rather than resist it tooth and nail, will actually uh, work out uh, the way in which the union and the employer are going to get on and interact with each other uh, about things that matter just as much about the business and how we can be more productive and how we can be more flexible in return for uh, the recognition of that through pay and conditions. That's really what it is. It's a trade-off. Yes. It's, it's a bargain. It's, 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 um, it's a contract. It's an understanding. And it's predictable. And there's security in it for both sides. It's, it, and it needs to be a win-win. Because if it's not a win for the employer to continue in business, it's not a win for the worker to continue to have a job and support themselves and their families. Yes. So there's a common interest, or there should be a common interest. Where that doesn't come about from day one, it's all then about fear. And it's all then about reaction rather than a consensus of how every day, you know, uh, is fulfilled. And it's a bad environment to be in when you haven't got a relationship with your employer and your employer hasn't got a relationship with you. Most employers don't like or feel threatened by workers coming collectively together as distinct from you being an employer who wants to see me in your office uh, and that usually spells trouble or where I'm uh, so frustrated that I, 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 I react in a very angry and aggressive fa- fashion as an employee and therefore because I, there was no other way to, to open the door uh, the step you take in many instances used to and in some cases still does it threatens your very existence where the employer won't tolerate it and uh, he just says don't bother coming tomorrow yes it simmers until it boils over basically Correct. and once it boils over yes. then yes it's yes. past the point of yeah, negotiation yeah, yeah. I yeah. reconciliation is yes. very hard yes. uh, to find um, now as Ireland is 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 positioned in 2021, we do have structures where there is third parties to referee these things, and where the employer will take it there, and the and the and the employees, the workers, will take it there, and somebody mediates or attempts to mediate, or attempts to make recommendations as to how maybe issues can be fixed. So the employer turns up, usually represented by the employer's organisation, uh, known as IBEC, Irish Business and Executive Confederation. And um, you have a trade union, usually on the other side for the workers. And you have somebody who mediates between the parties. If it can't be mediated, then it goes to what they refer to as the Labour Court. So you have conciliation first and then if conciliation doesn't fix this, you have a Labour Court process 
where the Labour Court then will hear both parties um, and will will chat the issues through and then usually will come out with a recommendation. Now, that is only a recommendation. Neither side have to abide by it, uh, ex- except in um, quite exceptional circumstances. So the remedy is still handed back to the two sides to fix it at the end. But they have a roadmap and they're being guided by other other people's opinions as to what uh, should happen and how how it can be fixed. And it's 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 a give and take. Has to be a give and take. It's not a uh, it's not a, you know someone um, as it were dictating the terms. Take it or leave it, because that is the friction situation, and that is the potential potential strike environment that you know uh, is as I say a last resort. But right this right now in this country. It's a voluntary system. The employer doesn't have to go to the Labour Court. The workers don't have to go to the Labour Court. They don't have to go to conciliation. They can go for the Big Bang. Um, the employer... So when I joined the trade union, after all the years of hard graft of trying to get workers' rights, union recognition, uh, the opportunity to collectively bargain, we don't have the laws in this country that give workers those rights. It's a voluntary system. You can do it if you wish, and if you don't wish, you don't have to do it. And uh, it's that kind of environment that would have you uh, remembering in your in your own uh, journey. You know that unions were about strife, and they were about. Um, as it were, action, and the where it was about uh, taking employers on, often with fatal consequences in the sense of the business goes, the jobs go. Uh, there were some outcomes like that. Uh, but, you know, I think all parties have learned, uh, some more than others. But we are still looking for legislation and we're still looking for government and the political parties who who create legislation and give people protection and rights to pass a law in this country that recognises the rights of workers to collectively uh, join a trade union and to collectively bargain with their employer. Um, so some people would find that very surprising, that that's still the case. So you can imagine being approached to join a trade union um, because things are not as good as they should be or not in the place they should be and not as fair as they should be. And uh, the first thing that you will ask your union, you know, what what will this mean for us uh, and how can we improve what we want to improve and how can we move forward? And and that's you know to have to say to workers, well, look, you know, you may you may ultimately have to make the, the ultimate sacrifice of actually going on strike. Unless your employer is willing and prepared 
not that he has to or she has to. So, <laughs> you know, after all these decades, it's hard to believe that Ireland hasn't grown up that much, uh, that we haven't, as it were, um, moved to the point where, like a lot of countries in Europe, and if you look and listen to even the newly elected president of America, who has come out and clearly said that workers uh, should have the right to join a trade union and should also have the right to bargain and collectively bargain with their employer. Um, so that struggle for us is incomplete right now. Uh, there are things happening in Europe uh, and there is a debate going on in Europe about collective bargaining and about union recognition and about um, the question of pay and should it be a minimum pay or a livable wage? Because the two are completely different. Yes, very much so. Very much so. So that debate is going on in Europe at the moment. It may produce uh, a directive from the European Union a directive would be quite significant because then member states who don't have uh, collective bargaining enshrined in law because the European Union will make a directive uh, those member states will then have to draw up uh, their own legislation to give that directive an a, a effect if it's only a recommendation then states can continue to decide whether they will or they won't. So the value of a directive is crucial to the union movement uh, across Europe. But certainly, if we're selfish, it's certainly very important for for Ireland. Um, the interesting thing about it is that last October in the Dáil, uh, one of the opposition parties, um, uh, who would be, would be a left party, um, put forward a piece, a bill that if it was passed in the Dáil uh, would have legislated for collective bargaining. But the parties in government, both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, um, they still hold the view that the voluntary system works and it's good enough when it does the job and there's no need to change it. Um, so you can clearly see why I'm saying that it's not about it being recommended to government by the European Union that they should do the right thing. It must be a directive because we have a habit in this country and governments have a habit in this country of doing nothing unless they have to or somebody else is telling them they have to particularly when it comes to uh, ordinary working people and their rights and their place in society. The laws favour big business, they favour authority and the courts, therefore, are seen to preside over those laws which makes, still makes, in today's terms, after all the struggles we've had, uh, makes workers inferior and second class. And 
uh, as it were, you know, having to uh, really fight hard to get what in a developed society and a developed country and certainly a country that, you know, uh, would pride itself on the democracy that we have created, you would think that that would be, would be part of that democracy, part of that society, part of that community, you know, of equality and equal treatment. But it's not. What if there was legislation, if if there was legal recognition of the trade unions, would that mean then that a labour a labour court recommendation would be legally binding and that the business would have to comply, or what what would actually technically no, change? It, it wouldn't turn it wouldn't turn uh, labour courts into uh, places where you know uh, the hammer came down and whatever the Labour Court said was then a must. The difference it would make is that that procedure of being entitled to go to the Labour Court, being entitled to have your case heard by the Labour Court, being entitled to have your employer there on the day putting counter-arguments and opinions to what workers were uh, looking for uh, or claiming... Uh, or wanting to achieve, the difference would be that that case would get heard. It would be presided over. You would get an outcome that you then could work with. At the moment, unless the employer says they're willing to go to the Labour Court... Or they don't even have to show up. They don't have to show up. They don't have to show up. They don't have to entertain your union official. They don't have to take a phone call from your union official. They don't have to let your union official inside the door. Yeah, they literally don't need to recognise them at all. Exactly that. But they have to recognise their employee, surely. They will recognise their employee to the extent that they want to. But it may be to do nothing more than to instruct the employee what's to be done, how it's to be done. And as I said... You come in from the neck down as an employee. We 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 know we know it all. Your opinions don't matter. In fact, even your ideas don't matter. Because the boss is the boss. Now we all know that the boss is always the boss, but the boss is not always right. And workers have shown and demonstrated uh, repeatedly on an ever increasing basis that if they're consulted with if they're respected, um, if their opinions are asked, uh, they will give... They're usually conscientious people. Uh, Most people like to do a good job or like to be known as somebody doing a good job and a good day's work. Um, uh, So if if the opportunity is, is presented... Uh, and an employer is not authoritarian. And I own the business. You know, I tell you, you just listen. Do what you're told. And uh, we'll be fine. Uh, that's not where 
the best comes out in everybody. And that's not a win-win. You know, um, people, like if you just look at how the public service have responded uh, to the, the COVID um, pandemic we, we've been coming through and, and the services that have been provided by uh, public service workers, it's been all very conscientious. It's been all very committed. Uh, uh, people's health and well-being mattered. Conscientiousness went through the roof uh, in terms of, you know, uh, what people done for twenty four seven for the duration of this whole thing. Um, I think it is it, it has shown very clearly just how good. Uh, a public service we have in looking after our, our society, looking after our elderly, uh, looking after our young people, and, you know, making sure that the right thing is done, you know, to get past what everybody was frightened about from the word go, uh, are, are, are unsure about it. Uh, big question mark... You know, for a lot of people out there, do I, do I take um, uh, the vaccination? You know, um, and so it has been a very trust, it's a very, very challenging time, but a time when trust seems to have uh, won the day. That nobody is going to do you harm. Everybody is trying to do the right thing. And there's different ways of getting the getting the job done, and there's been an awful lot of working together, you know, um, and that's the public service. And the public service, I suppose, in in trade union terms, the public service doesn't have, and the public service worker, and employer, uh, doesn't have some of the things you and I have been talking about so far in this conversation, because unions are recognised they're accepted as being a part of the system. It's the private sector and private sector business um, where the reluctance is to have recognition and to have collective bargaining uh, and to, to have the respect that that's the way we'll do our business. It's That's where the predominantly the problem continues to exist to this very day. And is the answer to that, or an answer to that, cooperatives? So the idea being that you can treat us as poorly as you want, but if this continues and it's not resolved, there's a good chance that, you know, half a dozen of us or all of us will set up a business in competition to you. Like, well, do, do trade unions have any hand in helping workers create co-ops is that, is that an arm of the oh, trade absolutely. unionist movement or absolutely um like the chronic co-op story you know was one where it was because the workers were organized in the trade union that they looked for and sought to find an alternative with all of the skills that those workers had to produce a product and and lines of furniture uh, and was there a way in which they could come together in a cooperative setting and working together 
uh, and actually have that business survive and as it were the jobs that they were losing wouldn't have to happen and it is a real example of how cooperatives can succeed how cooperatives can be formed uh, and you know uh, I remember the another cooperative that um, Carrigal Line Cooperative which was uh, Carrigal Line Pottery Carrigal Line Pottery was a company that ran into difficulties as a business and again a cooperative was formed out of that uh, and ran for many years and saved people's livelihoods actually in the clothing industry here in Navan a, a cooperative was formed out of Marsh's clothing factory just down the Janshaw Road from here um, and that was a, that was a, a business that uh, ran into difficulty and again workers looked to the, the union and uh, looked for the state to support them in setting up a cooperative and that cooperative did run for a period of time it made um, uh, gent suits and slacks and clothing um, and uh, it's, it, it's, let's put it this way it was an enabler to keep that skilled workforce together and keep people in employment it did revert back into a normal business setting, what we call a normal business setting, subsequently. But the but a cooperative did create the bridge for those workers to to have a future, uh, while maybe the bigger picture was was going to be formed and somebody else was going to actually become the new uh, the new business owner or the the new employer. But the cooperative definitely played its part. Um, so trade unions have uh, definitely uh, an affinity with cooperatives uh, are, are interested in exploring that idea the Irish Congress of Trade Unions which is uh, the, the main overall body right throughout the 32 counties north and south uh, uh, has a policy on cooperatives and a policy on encouraging cooperatives where workers want to do something like that uh, or are motivated to do something like that. I suppose the difference we need to make is that cooperatives have had usually uh, the experience of coming out of uh, a failure as distinct from being set up from from the get-go as from a cooperative. From the get-go, yes. as a business and as a cooperative. Now, agriculture and agricultural cooperatives uh, would would break that uh, mould in that they have existed for many years, very successfully, uh, uh, and we are such an agricultural uh, country. Um, so there's where, I suppose, the cooperative concept is a long, long time around, and has proven to work very well and have been set up as an origin of how the business came about. Yes, as opposed to a, a failed business turning Correct. into a co-op. Correct, yes. Because to, to put my, my capitalist hat back on, there is a great branding and marketing opportunity in a, in a 
cooperative business. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, if you think about it, if you have um, a product or a service and you believe in it uh, and you as an individual and then collectively are prepared to put a whole amalgam of skills together to bring a cooperative about. There's no doubt in my mind that everybody comes to work every day in a mindset of being very committed uh, to do the job, to help each other and to make it a success. And also that the structures of the reward for the work you do it's always structured on a, on an on an affordable basis because that's the only way the cooperative can survive is that everybody can have a living from it a reasonable living a living wage rather than a minimum wage do you get me oh very much so yeah because people won't be inclined to overpay themselves because they know if they overpay themselves and if somebody, you know, is on exorbitant wages because they have this title or that title, that's the potential for failure of, of on a financial basis of the actual business that cooperative, cooperatively they've come together to bring about and, and to succeed with. So everything is measured and you'll find that uh, the word greed doesn't exist in an environment like that because you would know if you're going to be greedy or you, as it were, display greed uh, or you you expect to be paid more than than what is reasonable and what everybody thinks is fair you won't be part of that cooperative because the cooperative can't afford that kind of uh, behaviour, you know, because it's no longer a co- you're no longer part of the cooperative if you're going to start thinking self- selfishly about yourself. Yes, it and runs that, counter and, to the whole endeavour. And, and that you only matter. Yes. Do you know what I mean? So uh, they're all the good reasons why cooperatives succeed. The other, I suppose thing that the the union movement would be would be very um conscious of is the success of credit unions if you think about credit unions and how credit unions are formed and and how they operate uh it's very closely related to the concept of how cooperatives work because again a credit union is about uh people coming together uh to support each other uh, to share uh, financial resources that are affordable, that one can manage, that you're not overreaching yourself with what you're looking to aspire to do or to to get by way of uh, a loan, you know, to something that you would otherwise never afford, be able to afford. Uh, so it's... There's a cooperative setting and a cooperative mindset as to how credit unions work. And they're a, they're a wonderful success story uh, around the world and certainly a, a big success story in, in, in this country. You know, uh, one of the first things... 
going back to uh, the youngster days and uh, to my dad, um, when Navin Credit Union was formed, he would have been, I think, the 154th member of the, of the Credit Union when it was formed right. all those years ago. And as soon as I was 16, he had me going in there to become a member of the Credit Union. And I bought my first Honda 50 <laughs> on, on a loan from the credit union. And I'm still a member of the credit union. And uh, I, um, I've i purchased more than one bike through the assistance of the credit union. And I've purchased a number of cars that I otherwise wouldn't have been, I would have been struggling uh, to, to provide uh, without the credit union. So I'm very, very... Um, committed to the success of the credit union movement. I think it's a great working man and woman's and family organisation and community organisation. And it's certainly built on the principles of uh, what Connolly and Larkin would have been um, been thinking of with regard to, you know, um, the community doing it for themselves and doing it in a way that was fair, that was equitable, and that ordinary working people could 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 move on in life with, with a, bit, a degree of dignity and a, a degree of, um, uh, I suppose, demonstrating that they could sustain themselves, again, by, by collective action. Yes. As distinct from the big banks, you know, and the CEOs. Uh, and the carnage that those institutions have actually done around the world and are still doing, and without consequences for them, but consequences for everybody else. Should we pay them their bonuses when they bankrupted the country? Correct. Um, and with one or two exceptions, you know, there's been no, um, there's been no time spent in, 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 in um, out of society and, 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 and behind behind bars for some of the outrageous things that have happened that are just purely uh, indefensible. Who do we need in government to... Uh, because I think you mentioned Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael earlier on. I mean, to me at least, and I'm not big into politics by any stretch of the imagination, but they seem to me to be the two sides of the same coin. Um neoliberalism basically Mm -hmm. so conservatism with a smile and uh, is there another party that's ready willing and capable to do anything or are they better to to take over say or are they better positioned as opposition parties trying to get changed amongst the status quo well if you look at um I suppose the, the the people that we would always mention in 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 conversations about trade unions and about socialism and about the left politics of the left. You know, you don't have a conversation with uh, about that without some reference and at least some identity with the aspirations of Connolly and Larkin the aspirations that are enshrined in the proclamation um, that was read so frequently in 2016. I publicly 
read that proclamation with pride and uh, with honour um, uh, three times during that year. Uh, one on the Belfast Road, um, on the Falls Road, outside the, the Connolly Centre uh, that's now there, the Commemorative Centre that's now there, very working class um, and socialist centre. Um, when we were celebrating the Irish Citizens and Army here on, in the Danshaw Centre here on, 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 on the Danshaw Road, uh, we um, it was read there, I read it there, and of course I read it at the um, the commemorative event in Cross the Keel where we would have been uh, celebrating and commemorating uh, Jim Connell uh, in that year. So there is an alternative to that ne- neoliberalism that you speak of. Um, there is an alternative to the two parties in Ireland who have dominated politics, dominated every government, have led every government from the foundation of the state. Um, there is an alternative to that. It is uh, the parties of the left. Um, they've never had their chance. They were ne- they've never been given their chance. I do believe there's some sign of that uh, changing and there's some possibility in the not foreseeable future and I hope I live long enough to see it that uh, the parties of the left uh, will take their rightful turn in my view uh, to lead a government uh, of this country and might even lead a government of this country in a new United Ireland because that debate has also begun very seriously. With Brexit? Or is that what you're referencing? Brexit, Brexit would certainly have uh, a factor into why people are uh, considering a new United Ireland uh, and the prospects of a new United Ireland, which, by the way, is provided for in the the um, Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Um. And workers and their families and trade unionists across this whole island uh, have to be part of that debate because they weren't the last time when the state was formed. We, it, it, The state was formed and it was formed with catering for the requirements of big business and uh, and the banks and empowering people uh, who uh, don't don't see it from the point of view that we do need not just in word but in action and in reality a greater and more equal society um and that there's a health service for all, not one on the basis of you can afford if you get the health service that you can afford, which often is not sufficient or not good enough for what you need by way of care. Um, look at the housing crisis of our time. 
Um, that's a serious, serious issue. Uh, and it has been for decades. But compare it to my time, Fran. When I was born. I was born into a thatched cottage. No running water. No electricity. But that's how my grandparents uh, lived all those years ago. As did everybody before them. As did everybody before them. We have become far more successful. We are capable of affording much better for everyone. And so if you look at what did work, local authorities building houses for ordinary families. I stress the word ordinary families. Somebody who will probably have to be planning and living on a minimum wage of less than 11 euro an hour. People who won't ever even get the opportunity to even enjoy a living wage, which again is another minimum, another form of minimum. It's only it's only another two steps above that minimum that we set out in legislation that people can't be paid less than. Yes, it's like getting punched in the face three times instead of five times. Right. It's better. But... So, so um, local authorities, when I was growing up, my father and mother would never have been able to afford a house as a farm, uh, as he was a farm labourer, uh, you know, in, in their own right. So local authority housing was built and was built in their thousands. At a time, by the way, when it was less easy for local authorities and for where the country was at to to afford it in comparison to what are our riches now, and yet they're not filtering down to those families uh, and future generations that need that kind of support uh, to have a house and a reasonable standard of house. Uh, so my movement from a thatched cottage into a local authority house was the only way my parents were ever going to put a different roof over their head. And the council loan that converted that local authority house from a house that had electricity but no running water and no sewerage to giving that working family a grant to put that water in and to put that sewerage in. And then went on to build local authority houses with electricity and with running water and with a sewerage. That is the role of local authorities. That's what communities don't no, no longer have at all, or if they have it, very insufficiently. Is that kind of uh, community... Um, service and that kind of community need being, 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 being provided or worked on. That's where politics has failed. 
now. Um, and then, of course, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Local authority housing on its own won't solve the problem. But there is a portion of society and there's a portion of our communities that needs that kind of housing. Others need affordable housing, more affordable housing, a reasonable price to to buy. Like, you know, isn't it outrageous to think that within the band of affordability of for housing, that you have this thing running from... Uh, around 200,000 and they still talk about an affordable house at 450,000 and how <laughs> that can and how that can be bought and how it can be affordable yeah, half, this, a half a million quid by, house by this scheme and that scheme and, and 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 this financial institution and that financial institution and a house you'll never really own um you know uh and 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 for many people, they don't want or need that kind of house. Their their level of expectation is lower than that. But the big builders uh, and and the financial institutions uh, keep telling us we have to have this house at four hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, and it's all to do with their financial needs. Their financial greed that has us all impoverished, needlessly so. No, they're they're wanting to go from one hundred million to one hundred and fifty million, and has right. the rest of us in the gutter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, politics and trade unions, um, you you have to have um, an interaction between the two. One can't operate without the other. Because if you think about it, we were talking earlier about laws in this country. We are depending on the political system to give us uh, laws and regulations and a way of operating. And the political system is charged with that responsibility. But it has let us down in so many ways and continues to do so. Uh, so trade union influence politically uh, with the left and with a different way of managing society and a fairer society and a less discriminated against society, uh, we would see that as an, 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 a legitimate um, aspiration, uh, a legitimate uh, say in how uh, the country should be structured how scarce resources uh, a lot of the time are are shared and divvied out, uh, how our services run, um, state ownership of vital uh, infrastructure. Imagine under the Troika agreement um, when the crash happened, we were to lose all our forests. That was one of the, the things that we were going to surrender in return for the financial support the Troika was designed to give us. Our forests would not be would not be Irish forests anymore. They'd be gone. That's why the fear about the the public ownership of water is is very much in our minds as 
as trade unions and as as um, uh, ordinary working people. Um, uh, because imagine the privatisation of water and how that would be managed and utilised. Like, it's not that long ago since we heard, you know, uh, when the whole issue of water charges was around, uh, where a minister and who became a European commissioner uh, said that uh, water would be reduced to a trickle for anybody who didn't pay what they wanted by way of water water charges. I would feel that our taxation system should be such that the payment for the services of water and the supply of water and the quality of water should be in right in the middle of the level of taxation that we tax that 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 everybody uh, contributes towards that can afford to and that has an income to do so. Uh, that's how that should be paid for. That's and 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 the notion of sore charges and secondary taxation, you know, is a very unfair way to go about funding your services. Um, so we, we touched on, you know, um, I suppose the the question of the island and the future politics of the island. Uh, there is a new, there is an organisation that I'm uh, a founder member of uh, uh, in nineteen in two thousand and nineteen. Trade unions for a new United Ireland. The emphasis being on the word "new," not, not, uh, what has gone before, to just be part of the the same old regime, albeit that we, we call it thirty two counties, uh, uh, rather than the present twenty six we have, uh, versus, the the six that are uh, in the northern part of our island. What would that new? What would we knew about it? So presumably, you're going to have legal recognition of the trade unions. You would. We certainly would have an expectation that in drawing up a new constitution and bill of rights that would, uh, you know, create and direct how this new Ireland would 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 shape. Uh, that that would be one of the cornerstones of it. And just as as you say, cornerstones. What would the other cornerstones be, sir? Oh. The big issue is health and health services and um, it being a health service that would be the best combination of the national health service that's in Northern Ireland and the Slauncher Care health service that we have, um, as it were, a policy uh, drawn up on, but we're not even one step of the way towards creating that new health service which is that everybody irrespective of uh, um, it means gets looked after and we have a progressive taxation system that that deals with that and not a two-tier system that's presently existing uh, where you can have certain services and you can your health uh, can be uh, looked after uh, at the point of need uh, 
uh, without the question of, can you afford it? So, health services, uh, education, of course, housing, um, climate change. On this small island, we need to get our climate, uh, uh, we need to get our contribution to responsible climate uh, on this island and for the world over uh, in a place where we're doing things much, much smarter um, and much more enlightened. And we're doing it in a 32-county context. Now, it is a complicated subject. Trade unions for a new United Ireland, the debate has begun. Trade unionists uh, are definitely going to be part of that debate this time round. Uh, we're a civil, a civil, a civic society uh, organisation that is about 800,000 strong. So our views need to matter. Our views will have to be heard. Uh, we we want to play our part. Um, respect and dignity is going to be a crucial part of it. Um, nobody should be inferior. Uh, equal, equal citizenship. Um, and traditions, old traditions and where people have come from uh, particular difficult backgrounds, whether they're nationalist or unionist or neither. All of, all of that has got to be on the table. All of that has got to be catered for. Um, there should be no minorities, and therefore we're all equal, and there's mutual respect. How do you mean? You lost me there slightly with there should be no minorities. There should be no discrimination on the basis of one is one is a, a, a minority because of one's political or religious beliefs. Uh, so, in Northern Ireland, you have traditions and you have uh, experiences that are very current. They're very emotive. They're uh, enshrined in history in conflict and all of that uh, needs to find accommodated in the concept of how a new Ireland would both look and would operate My concern with, you, with what I'm interpreting your vision to be is that you're promising something that doesn't exist so now bear with me because this is by any stretch of the imagination my area of expertise but if you were to get legal recognition for the trade unions in Ireland if you were to sort out our health system if you were to sort out our water our housing crisis our environmental footprint and, and all the rest of it you'd become more attractive to the six counties up the north so if if you if you if you yes. could herald in not your utopia but your if you could herald in your your vision in the twenty six counties mm. the six counties in the north will be knocking on your door looking to join as opposed to you knocking on their door promising them a new Ireland does that make sense because my understanding as limited as it is of the Good Friday Agreement and relation to unifying the the island is that if 
a majority of people in the North want to join the Republic, say, that's basically all it would take. So the best way of selling that, as far as I'm concerned, would be to to create your vision in the 26 counties and for the six counties to come to you looking to join, as opposed to you saying, we're going to do this, will you come on the journey with us? Oh, yeah. No, uh, the way the way to, the way that this has to be approached is that uh, there has to be a debate. That's yes. the first thing. There has to be a way of enabling that debate to take place in the different elements of society, in the different organisations and institutions that have traditionally existed on the island, albeit separated, uh, not in an, in a north south context. Uh, it has, to, in other words, uh, whatever happens uh, in what's now a growing debate, democracy uh, will be a cornerstone of how a decision is taken as to how the future is going to look and do we want to do this. Um, there will have to be two referendums on the island, one north and one south. There'll have to be a, an obvious um, question um, about the kind of Ireland it's going to be. It can't be like a vote on Brexit, where people voted without really knowing what they were voting for or what it would look like if Brexit was the vote in favour, which it turned out to be the case. But when when the vote was over, no one really knew what Brexit was going to look like. I believe the day after so, the uh, announcement that of the the result of the referendum, the number one thing that was Googled was in the UK was what is the EU. The day after it was announced what yes. way the referendum had gone. Yes. So I think that kind of yeah. says, all, says all that needs to be said. Yeah, well, look... Um, there's so many things that in a new Ireland uh, it would be in an in an all Ireland context that the constitution would have to be a, a new constitution would have to be drawn up and a new bill of rights uh, an all Ireland national health service uh, is is to me a sensible legitimate aspiration and goal to have within that new constitution and Bill of Rights decent pay and strong trade unions and and legislation that's long overdue put in place because if everybody is going to be fair and reasonable and respectful then there's nothing to fear uh, by either the employer towards workers or workers towards employer if we're going to be mutually respectful to each other there's an awful lot of listening has to be done so there's a lot of talking to be done but there's no point in talking unless we're all listening to each other and listening to the person or persons that are talking because if we're not listening then we're not interested in the other person's opinion and this is about consensus and I do believe that if we are generous enough and respectful enough 
we are capable of doing the right thing. And we are capable of leaving fear and discrimination and setting it permanently aside. If we are going to share the island and the word share means what it's supposed to mean, then there'll be an there'll be a, 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 um, a standard of living and there'll be a standard of values that will make that unique difference that the proclamation uh, subscribes to. Imagine that document being as relevant today as it was written in 1916. When you read that document and you seriously take on board what the the, the, the men and women of that time were thinking about with regard to the kind of Ireland they were giving us a vision of. It's a perfect fit. But we we have we have shortchanged it in so many ways. And there is a thing about about us on this island and about many people on this island uh, which I hope will change as part of this debate we need to say what we need what we mean we need to mean what we say and we need to be prepared to do what we commit to doing and we need to get much better at that because that's the only way uh, will society be comfortable with itself Yes. It's all well and good to a degree having a vision and having a plan and you could have everything laid out perfectly in front of you. But if you don't have the ear of the people, mm. you're you're kind of, you're shouting into the abyss a little. And the, the reason that I called my, my podcast off the lead is it's a pushback against what I refer to as the domestication of our species. So I, I am of the opinion that human beings, myself and yourself included, have become domesticated to a degree to the point whereby we were told where to go to get our food and what to eat and how to go about our lives and everything is kind of dictated from on high. Our government has essentially replaced the church in, in many respects. And my efforts is to try and, I suppose, re-engage people and to I suppose open people's eyes to just the, the the realities of the world because something that I love doing is getting what I call people from different loops so you're in the trade union loop so you're a great man for me to chat to because I already know infinitely more now than I did when we started and I, I hope your listeners do too as well I've got, but of course and they will <laughs> yeah. and just to, to, to clarify something to the people listening you originally gave me you originally floated the idea to me when I contacted you a couple of weeks ago that you said you'd send me on a couple of links and that I'd read into it and look into it and, and get a better understanding of it. And if I had done that, we would have had a much deeper conversation than we've had now. But I explained that would have left the listener kind of behind. So I want to drag them along, kicking and screaming with me. You were right about that. That was that was and is the way to approach it in terms of getting, uh, first of all, what we're exchanging between us said in an ordinary form of language that yes, people can understand. it's not convoluted, it's, exactly. It's the ordinary person on the street 
uh, it's, the, it's the ordinary uh, man and woman, teenager, uh, future generation that needs to understand what you and I are talking about. And we don't need to be above the, the, the ground floor level on this because that's the only way it's, it's valuable when people actually understand it in, in a very simple way, said in a very simple way. And I hope we're, we're both achieving that. I'm certainly trying to achieve that by the way I'm interacting with you and kind of how I'm, the, the words I'm using. I, I'm not, I was never into, you know, the big words and the small words would do, would do much better. Yes. Do you know? Um, yeah, so I, I, I do hope we're, we're, we're achieving that. I, I don't know whether, you know, how many more of these kind of conversations we might have in the future. But this is our first, and uh, I, I see it as something we can probably develop and build on uh, as we go along. And I'd love to hear uh, the reaction of your listeners, uh, and they may give, they may challenge us, and I hope they do, into things that we've said that they don't necessarily understand, or even the things that we haven't covered at all yet that we might cover. For for our benefit and for their benefit, do you know? Uh, so this is a start, maybe of of a, a a different journey than I might have done before, or you know, um, it's not like a general meeting of of members. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that's know? that's something that I wanted to actually get to because you said that there has to be a dialogue. So my concern, I suppose, with the way things are and the way things have been over the years, is mm. that trade unionists have their rallies or their AGMs or whatever it is that they do and it's attended by trade unionists and it's all the trade unionist heads smiling and nodding at each other mm. and then across the road in the fancy hotel you've got IBEC and all the business heads are smiling and nodding and agreeing mm. with each other mm. but that there's not a whole pile of crossover say yeah and in that context that I've just laid out, mm. the regular man on the street is just completely oblivious to the whole thing. Yes. I mean, we're in the, the SIP2 building. Is it the SIP2 building SIP2 or building, the SIP2 yeah. building Dan here? Dan Shostner, Road, yeah. Exactly. And what I said to you when I when I walked in the door was, I've driven by this place right. a thousand times. Yes. A, didn't know what it was. Right. B, didn't know, I'll leave it at that, I didn't know what it was, didn't yes. know anything about it. Yes. And I'm born and bred in Navan. Mm. And I would imagine most people would kind of be the same. So is there a disconnect between the trade union, the trade unions basically, and they're just the, the regular people, do you think? Well, there's a barrier for trade unions to operate. And as long as that barrier remains, which is the one I, I said to you about union recognition and collective bargaining, their hurdles we have been uh, frustrated by held back by and restricted by in terms of our message and in terms of our relevance and people knowing us and knowing about us more than they do because we're really operating in in a manner where uh, we're constantly trying to uh, jump barriers that in a democratic society shouldn't be there at all. If we're all being fair, if we're all being transparent, if we're all, uh, as it were, being respectful. So we are working with that restriction. Now, that's not an excuse. It just happens to be a fact. And, you know, um, 
I remember doing talks to schools. Uh, I remember holding, you know, information meetings. Um, but in fairness, ordinary working people are very busy people working and uh, making ends meet. And the time to, the extra time to give after a hard day's work and then, you know, dealing with the family and being there for the family, getting more time to give to come to meetings or to uh, to listen in, even to to what we are doing tonight. You know, people getting time to listen to this um, and actually, as it were, getting ready to kind of take it on board. It's it's in the frantic way life has been lived at the moment. It's not easy. So, I do believe that if we had um, a new Ireland with a new constitution and a new Bill of Rights, uh, I think people would one become interested. Number two, they would be accommodated, both at work and outside of work, to come to know what the union movement is doing, what its goals are, and that the buy-in would be different. Do you know? Yeah. It's a big sacrifice at the moment uh, for people uh, to make, to, 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 as it were... It gives some time to actually their own needs uh, become more informed of their rights and entitlements. Um, how do you address if you are being bullied at work? How do you address that the, the question of unsafe practices at work? Like if you look at the, the COVID one, look at the meat factories in the COVID uh, pandemic and you look at uh, the um, the shortcuts that were being taken uh, in those factories, the fear among the workers in those factories, many of whom are visitors to this country or or people who have uh, come to here out of places in their own countries where they have had nothing but persecution, nothing but uh, being deprived of 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 a job or deprived of actually a living wage or a, or even a minimum wage. Um, and they've come here for the betterment of their families. And us, us Irish on this island, you know, there's so many instances where we have been so disrespectful to those people. And yet we have travelled the world because we had to at various times in our, in our uh, journey. And, uh, so we should know something about what it's like to go to a foreign country and be mistreated. Like I, I have, I have seen instances in my time, you know, where I've come across some very ruthless employers, and so much so that it didn't make me proud to be Irish. I have met an awful lot of fair, decent employers 
in my time. But you see, the selfish ones, the greedy ones, and the ruthless ones spoil it for the rest of us and make it impossible for the kind of country and the kind of society that decent people because their their previous generations handed them down a respect for decency a respect for uh, looking out for the other person that's what I know you grew up with I certainly grew up with it I know how lucky I was and am uh, from that but many people will never experience that uh, unless we change and unless this island you know sets new values sets a new constitution of values and sets a bill of rights that's going to ensure that that's going to happen that it's not aspirational uh, that it will be frowned upon once we create those values if they're not being practised and there will be consequences they're the things that all those combinations in my view need to come together and that's why we have to have this debate and I suppose the biggest challenge there is on the island is in fairness uh, respectfully convincing the unionists to have this debate with us their views and their opinions and their needs are going to be different than what you and I might debate here tonight and if if they were with us here tonight uh, I would be listening to them because I know they have to feel wanted they have to feel respected uh, they're entitled to have different views uh, democracy at the end of the day must decide it not the, old, the strife of the past and that's the opportunity we have you know in in the coming years I'd hope to live long enough that um, this island can can uh, produce still its best which is better than its past and for the future generations I do t- feel personally that I have a responsibility to play my part in that and so do many others you know so I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, I don't know how long the journey will be going to be. Um, but I think people have to be fair. And we have to have the, have to have the debate first. Yes. Not the question first. The question of whether we will change or not depends on the debate that we have, the quality of that debate the inclusiveness of that debate and our tolerance for the diversity of opinions. And, and bear in mind, this is not just about North and South. It's not just about nationalists and unionists. We have people in this country who have come here uh, for a better life and they're going, they want to be as Irish as the Irish themselves or as the unionists themselves. 
and they have to be part of this as well. So it's going to be have to be a very pluralist Ireland, a very tolerant Ireland, a very welcoming Ireland. And it's a small island, but we have some great resources, natural resources, um, that the planet has given us. And it's a valuable island as part of the, of the overall planet. But, like, we are disrespecting it in so many ways. Uh, the throwaway mentality. Uh, my way, somebody else will pick it up for me. Mentality. Like, you know. Um, it's funny, too. Um, look how long it took us. And, and, like, look at the contradiction this was. So, we puffed smoke into each other's faces and those that didn't smoke at all you know were on a night out uh, reeked of smoke by the time they got home I remember it well right? we in our hotels and restaurants we would prepare food and we'd do it in, in a hygienic way and it would be presented in, in a real presented way and the cleanliness and hygiene would all be a key part of it and health and safety and then you had this dirty big glass in the middle of the table that everybody tipped a cigarette into and crushed the butt of the cigarette while we eat around that bowl in the middle of that table and how long it took us to realise the contradiction that was. And how the campaigns about how we were now going to regulate this thing in a much different way. Um, if I remember Michael Martin for anything, I remember the effort he had to make because of the lobbyists that were out there uh, wanting the status quo to remain and nothing to change all on the basis of uh, the tobacco industry. And, you know, um, the way we went about uh, utilising that drug and how better off we all are with the freedoms that we now have because of a couple of good decisions we got made. You know, from a health point of view, from a hygiene point of view, and just from, again, general respect for those who didn't smoke at all, but allowing those that did smoke, if they really wanted to, that was a personal choice. Yes, there's a, there's an irony in that as well, I suppose, that the the reason it was changed, or at least my understanding of the reason why it was changed, or how it was changed legally, was that it was a workplace yes, thing? You couldn't correct. be blown. Health and safety. It was health, and, but it wasn't health and safety over the the suitability of a smoky environment for preparing or eating food. It no. was the people. It was the workers. It was correct. the minimum wage guy behind the bar correct. that correct that pushed it over the That's line. Right. Basically, That's right. That's right. And we we all benefit. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. So so much of other things that we do and we don't do <laughs> need to have the same treatment you know, it brought about so that we all arrive in a better place in terms of, you know, living our lives 
um, in the world we're in. And uh, what a place the world is. What a beautiful place the world is. Uh, but, you know, if you look at some of the destruction and carnages we've caused, needlessly so, um, we're, 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 as human beings, we're, we're quite a contradiction at times. Very much so, very much so. Yeah. Your pitch, for want of a better term, is very saleable. So I have a 15-year background in sales and business development. And what you've spoken about, to me at least, is very sellable. And I think there's a ready appetite for that. I think people are more ready, willing and able to accept change these days than, than ever before. Because I think people are starting to kind of poke behind the curtain. Have trade unions and the labour movement and the left generally, have they a, 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 an image problem? Have they a marketing problem? Because for me and so many people like me and yourself, we think along the lines that you're thinking. It's a bit of, it's a bit of a no-brainer. It's all very self-explanatory. It's all, it, it kind of, it, it seemed to work. But it never really seems to gain any traction. And I'm just wondering what you think is the, is the key component there. Is it an image thing? Is it a lobbying thing? Is it a, a status quo and government thing? Is it a mix of them all? Or, or what's your sense of it? Well, sadly, the left is very splintered. Um, there's quite a few brands of socialism and there's quite a few brands of the left identity. But only one capitalist. Correct. Um. Well, certainly, there's not as many brands of capitalism as there is of socialism. Yes. And of politics of the left. Uh, we badly need to have a unity of the left. Um, there isn't a problem having different left-leaning and left-opinionated parties. It's when they are determined to be in competition with each other even to the point that the socialist model and socialist principles can either be damaged or lost and it is crying out for a unity amongst the left um Again, I'll tell you this simple story. Um, I'm not a member of any political party, um, but my trade union beliefs and my trade union actions and campaigns and uh, goals that the union movement would be uh, to the forefront in, um, I do realise as I said earlier, that politics, you, you cannot divorce politics from all of that work because politics either helps you or hinders you with that work. So therefore, we have to have a political influence to get our goals and achievements um, 
of fairness and equality um, and respect and and, and dignity uh, both at work and in society. We have to have um, cognizance that there's a political system out there that will either prevent you or be a big hindrance to you achieving those things. So the unity of the left is a major problem, Fran. Um, less so some of the other combinations, but it's not one single thing on its own, but the unity of the left is, in my view, the biggest one uh, that we have failed to deal with. Um, this present debate, by the way, uh, might be might have a, a unifying purpose in the left becoming closer and listening and seeing each other and enabling each other to actually change politics forever in this country by being, for the first time, a left-led government, which we have never experienced or never allowed to happen. Um, I think um, it's, it's something that parties of the left have to really, really deal with. Um, I think the debate on a new United Ireland uh, will help that. But, as I say, I'm not a member of any political party, but I'm very strongly identified with parties of the left. I see good in them all. I see relevance in them all. Um, I was once a member of the Labour Party, I'll tell you how that quickly um, became no more. While at the same time, I would never disown uh, some of the good things the Labour Party has done and has had the opportunity to do, albeit in a a minority coalition arrangement. Um, Have they disappointed me? At times, of course they have. Um, We can always do better. But um, my own short time in politics was I was in the Labour Party and I ran in the local government elections in um, 78. And if it wasn't 78, it was 79. I think it was 78. And I entered in as a candidate in the county council elections uh, for the um, Navan area. And um, I entered the race... In, in, in a short space, of t- you know, late in the race type of thing, having been approached. And uh, I was very, I was quite young. At 78, I was, I was only becoming a union official, just had become a union official. And um, so my mind was, you know, um, only taking shape in, on so many fronts. Um, and... Um, so running those elections, my memory tells me that I think I got eliminated on the fourth count. And I came out of the community centre in Trimgate Street, in the centre of the town here. Um, and uh, I met this guy outside and I said to him, let's call him Pat. I says, how are you doing, Pat? Oh, he says... I'm fine, he says. The king is in. 
And I says, who's the king? And he then identified a publican in Navan. And uh, I says, uh, as a matter of interest, I says, how do you, why do you call him the king? And he says, let's put it this way, Christy. He says, he's the only publican in Navan, he says, that will give the working man a drink on the slate. But that told me that that drink on the slate was so important to that, to Pat, who was an ordinary worker, um, worked in a low-paying job. But that drink on the slate was so important to him, that decided how he voted. And I walked, he done me the biggest favour of my life. I walked down Trimga Street and I said to myself, you know, I think politics is not for me. <laughs> because if that's what decides how a, an ordinary working person, very good person, very honest person, family man, but if that's what he makes his mind up as to how he's going to cast a, an important vote, uh, then I am going to serve one master where I actually can make a difference, uh, can improve people's uh, lives, and I'm going to stick strictly to the trade union movement. That's not to say I'm not going to have a political belief and strong political beliefs. So my politics... An identity with politics has very much been on uh, the socialist and republican um, uh, issues, things, issues, issues and, yeah. and, and politics that influences both those things. And that's how it happened that I never went any further in politics. and But always had a political view, a very strong political view. Uh, always believed the unity of the left needed to happen. And any opportunity I got or would still get uh, for, let's say, uh, 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 the things that are common thinking and common in in their value between Labour between and Sinn Féin, between now the Social Democrats, people before profit, um, anything that unites how they will work together on behalf of ordinary working people and their families and communities I will go the extra mile to make that happen uh, it needs to happen in the ballot box proportional representation is something that we value and that's where proportional representation could give us for the first time in our history, a left-led government. Um, I'd like to think if that opportunity was given to the left, they would treasure it, they would respect it, and they would give it their best shot. And they would demonstrate that they could make a difference and that they would make that difference. Will I see it before I pass on? I'm not sure. But it won't be for the one to try it. No, and I'm sure you go to your grave very happy knowing that you've done so much to set up the trajectory for it to happen, whether it's a united Ireland or a mm. left-leaning Irish mm. government. or. Mm. 
But like none of us can do this on our own. We all need uh, to be doing it uh, with in with in a collective way, and in a in a way in which we convince each other that there is a better way. And by the way, uh, if we're going to use that better way, this is the difference it'll make. That's the continuing uh, way we need to take time to talk to each other, but in talking to each other, that we listen to each other. Yes. It has to be grassroots. Would you agree with that? that oh, it has to be from the bottom so. up. Very much so. As opposed to dictated. Yeah. So yeah, it, yeah. the way I see it, even if Sinn Féin, Labour and Co, the, the left-leaning party, say, even if they did all amalgamate and get into power, I think that would be the wrong way to go about it nearly. I mean, I, I, I would sooner... I would sooner nearly a new party that the man on the street could, um, I don't know, see a re- reflection of himself in, for want of a better term, so, some some something tangible. Mm. And this. well, if the left, if if the left do manage uh, to work more cohesively uh, with each other, and do collectively. Uh, set aside some of the differences which really don't matter other than their historical uh, historically where they've come from but if some of that baggage can be set aside for the greater cause of a a better Ireland a better island, um, better for our communities, better for our future generations, then I think they have a responsibility to make that happen. Um, Albeit that they don't have to become another party. They can keep... Like, what's what's in a name uh, if you don't have... A mandate. What's in the name if you don't have respect? What's in the name if somebody doesn't believe in the name? Um, you're going nowhere. So, you know, these identities, you have to have identities, but they're not the be end and all of everything. It's it's what the goal is, uh, and how you get there. That's that's the challenge. That's that's the thing that people have to think about most, and think about longer than. They've they've done before. Uh, I think there's very well in, intended people in politics, but politics um, hasn't got the respect because it hasn't earned the respect that it deserves. The contradictions are serious. You know our inadequacies to deal with some of the the most basic of things that would change people's lives so fundamentally, um, and our incompetence to to arrive at consensus, uh, the bureaucracies that we've set up <laughs> as to how politics functions, like, it's all about, or it seems to be all about, particularly on the right, about power, uh, dominance, and holding on to that power and holding on to that dominance. Uh, that's what, That's what the journey has been in so many ways. And therefore, young people, 
when you talk about young people's interest in politics, young people's time for politics, uh, young people's um, readiness to actually even cast their vote that was so hard fought for and so hard won. You know, it's understandable why it doesn't mean what it should mean for them. Because it's not been led in a way that is convincing. And it's not been led in a way that suggests uh, that people matter enough. Yeah, I'd be in complete agreement, and I kind of touched on this earlier on that the the left generally has a has a marketing problem. It has a a, un, a unity mm. slash marketing mm. problem. Well, I think you're right about that about the left, but so has politics overall. None of them are are doing it in a well thought out and caring way, respectful way. <laughs> it's well thought thought, out, thoughtful way. It's well thought out <laughs> for the goal. For the for the goals that they want. Oh yeah, to to keep the status quo, to keep everything the way it is, of course. Yeah. And the bureaucracies that are there that impede change mm. aren't there by accident. Well, like I thought it was extraordinary. Um, to be honest, Fran, I thought it was extraordinary. Um, the downright um, disrespect and hypocrisy of parties in the last election that despite what the electorate might produce by way of a result and man and a mandate for different parties that they were actually going to defy the democratic outcome by saying we won't talk to this party yeah and both main parties both saying that and then both main parties conspiring to make sure but that's just that the right versus the as, left, isn't as it? As much as they try to convince us that they're different, they were prepared to go into coalition to make sure that an, a party that got all but one vote equal with them wasn't going to be tolerated or on the pitch or heard. Now, what examples does that show to people uh, uh, and to young people about voting the power of your vote, the value of your vote, the respect for your vote. There's there's a there's a, a weirdness to that though because people people like winners, and people will vote for people who don't have their best interests at heart, but will vote for them because they're winners. So there's there's something, and it's it's a perverse mm. human nature thing, mm. Mm. but there's something that people admire about people who are willing to just win at all yes. costs. Yes. And there's, there's some sort of an attractiveness yeah. there. Yeah. And that's something I think that the right has capitalised on quite well and the left has, I don't know if it's ignored or it doesn't get it or or what. Is there a, a political party or a country that you would kind of aspire to? And I, I, don't, I don't like that, the way I've even phrased that because I think we mm. should, we're, we're, we're big enough and bold enough now to kind of make it up as we Cab- go along. Cabra her own. But yeah. when Connolly and Larkin and co... Mm. Like they were at the pre the foundation of the state. Correct. Where were they looking to for a, a better example? Because we're a oh, me and you were a hundred years in. Yes. But where were they looking to? Well, Connolly and Larkin were certainly, you know, two socialists. Connolly was so politically advanced in his thinking <clears throat> that he actually set up the Labour Party. 
Okay. Um, all those years ago, and it's known, it's often referred to, sorry, it's often oh. referred to as Condy's party. Okay. You know, uh, the Labour Party. So, uh, he left, he left any of us that wanted to uh, think politically and, and the future direction of politics, he left us in no doubt as to what his vision was. And he was a visionary. Uh, and he had, maybe dream is not the right word, but he certainly had a vision, a valuable vision uh, to anybody that wanted to wanted to hear it. Um, and of course, he gave his life, as did uh, the seven signatories to that proclamation uh, and all the volunteers that, you know, uh, believed in what, in what was their vision. Um, the sad thing about it is that, you know, whatever comes go down a civil war. So we had a civil war and the best didn't come out of it uh, in terms of uh, what got cemented in place and is still there, you know, with nobody else getting uh, a chance or even a half-decent chance of being, of having an influence and their views and opinions uh, taken on board as distinct from being refuted and being uh, set aside because I thought of it and you didn't. And because I thought about it before you thought about it, I'm, I'm going nowhere because it wasn't your idea. Yes. You know, what kind of mentality is that? When a point is, is good, when a point is logical, when a point is balanced and reasonable, and the better of all the options that's been talked about, why should it f- fall on the wayside because it wasn't your idea or you thought about it first before I did? Yeah, there's a pettiness to it, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, pettiness. And and it's back to what the the grab for power and holding on to that power and to even be deceitful in hold in while holding on to it or while attempting to hold on to it and to spin things and to misrepresent things. And like we we have done a lot of that in 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 our generations. We are we're probably the best masters of it, actually, uh, to the point where if we don't convince the people we're trying to convince and bring them along with us and and trust us with it, uh, no matter how wrong it is, we convince ourselves that it's actually true or it's it's relevant or it's it's right. When in fact, you know, really, being honest. You know, in a quiet moment with yourself, you'd sort of say, you know, I'm if I get away with this, like, you know, and it's all about getting away with it uh, and getting further down the road and getting what's currency today and what's relevant today, just getting out of there and it'll be something else tomorrow and they'll forget about that for a while and it'll come back to it again, like the housing crisis, as an example. Or like the state of our health services. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, no, absolutely, yeah. 
And like, in all fairness, you know, some of those people are getting hell well paid for for throwing out that um, despicable mindset. Yes. Like, the notion that uh, we have somebody taken up office. Now, he's not getting the pay that's intended for the job. But from the pay that he had as a civil servant to the pay that is now being offered to him by the government and has been set by the government, and it's €92,000 greater than the pay he had before he took up this job. Yes. How can that be explained away? He's been bought. Right? Uh, <laughs> plain, and, plain and simple. Well, apart from being bought, like, what what job? And really, is there, is there somebody worth that pay? No matter how responsible the job is. Like, why aren't... You know, I... I when I became a full-time union official. Um, the pay terms and conditions of employment from the job I was in to the job I was going to, I was prepared to take a pay cut. Now, I don't say that boastfully, but I had something inside me. I had something in my DNA that sort of said, look, Money matters, but it's not going to dominate me. It's not the BN and all of everything. It's about, you know, um, it's about being happy in life. It's about being happy with other people that's in your life. It's about those who have less and less than what they need, just getting what they need. Not any more than what they need, but enough. And of course, the the phrase out there is, when is enough enough? And like, you know, I don't understand, like, the, the distribution of wealth. Like, the wealth that's in this world, and what if it was shared, and everybody could live with a reasonable standard of living. Sure. If half the wealth was shared. If half the wealth was shared. Just half of it, actually. Uh, as against what you see our media showing us, um, given how long the world has existed, that people are on our scrap heaps of food, of wasted food, and... Uh, all kinds of environmentally damaging things that are put into mountains and mountains and mountains of rubbish, right? And you have people on the top of those rubbish banks and their only way of living for that particular day is what they can find in those rubbish dumps. Yeah, people no different than me and you. You know, and what are they? in terms of being equal with us, they're human beings. But they're not being treated like human beings. 
Like, that's how I know personally that I've been dealt a very fair hand in being in this world. I value that. I, myself and and uh, Marion had three uh, have three sons, um, Chris and Ivor and Aaron. Ivor Gullen, past guest in front of the show. There you go. Um, so we, Marion and I, were extraordinarily lucky with you know our three sons, and I am proud of what they've grown up to be. Um, we certainly have influenced their lives. They would tell us that. And they're ordinary. Just like Marion was and her parents. And I have been and my parents. And um, I believe I'm in heaven here on this, on this, on this earth. I don't think there's another heaven that's good. I do know that people would say, what is he talking about? Because I haven't experienced that. And I would just like everybody to get some experience of that. I know that I have helped people get get, get to a better place. Um, I only helped them. I didn't do it for them. They done it themselves. I enabled them. So, however it's come about, and whatever kind of gift, and where it's come from, I'm glad I was chosen. And I hope I've done it. I hope I've done right by a lot of people, and fair by a lot of people. Um. But like the journey of life, you keep learning. You know, um, I'm looking at life much different than I did uh, 50 years ago. But the journey of life has taught me a lot of things. And if you're, if you, I suppose you have to be listening and you have to be looking if the journey of life is going to teach anything. And it seems, <laughs> you know, so far, um, I'd, I'd I'd be happy to know that some better degree of fairness and some better degree of justice and some better degree of respect that some people that that has touched some people because of what they have done by our paths crossing yes I don't know whether I've said that well enough or not, but paths crossing, you know, are crucial. Uh, the amount of paths that I have crossed and it's made me turn my head to look or to listen, you know, we can't get half enough of that. Uh, it's, there's something so valuable when it happens. Well, paths crossing, if, I, if I've taken you up right there, is the... I suppose, fundamental basis for community. Correct. Yeah. Uh, our lives experiencing experiences crossing. Yes. And being compared. 
and being exchanged with each other. Uh, so that we both end up, when those paths cross, looking at things differently than yesterday and in a much better way. And whatever needs to be done, taking the time to do it. You know, it's even if it's even if it's uh, you know um, taking somebody's point of view, which doesn't concur with your own view, but you actually, upon reflection, get to understand why that other person is thinking like that, and how how their own journey is causing them to think like that and you then walk on a way where your next conversation might be shining some light into what you have reflected upon so that they reflect some more and find a better way you know no, absolutely. I think the, the quickest way you'll ever get to changing somebody else's mind is to show them how you've changed your own. Yes, yes. Well, my parents used to always say uh, to me, um, um, never ask somebody to do something that you yourself are not prepared to do. Yeah, wise words. You know. And, of course, the, the obvious words of the generation's before us was you know if you want to lead lead by example yes you know um so you know i suppose that's what's guided me um along the way um i do know there's whole loads of things that i would have done differently if you had the second time to do them and you know something you know the way we are as humans we often would need 10 chances to do something right that we had done wrong. Of course, yeah. You know, it's nice to get it right the second time round and get the chance to do it, to get the, the second time at it. But even then, we still often fail uh, to do to do the best thing or the right thing. It's funny that, that we don't typically learn from our mistakes, more so we learn from doing things right. Like we, we'll, we'll make the same mistake yes. over and over yes. and over, but yes. it's not until you do something right that you actually... Yeah, no, true. ...cop on to yourself. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> we're, yeah. All, we're, all, we're all guilty of that one. Yeah, yeah, no, true enough. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'm not so sure. Um, uh, without further reflection and without further... Um, uh, and deeper uh, travelling into this unbelievable conversation we've had for the guts of coming up in two and a half two and a yeah. half hours um, um, maybe maybe this is episode one I'd, lo- I'd love to think so <laughs> I really would love <laughs> and, to think uh, so that uh, we can broaden this out much further well, um, well what I'm looking forward to delving in with you now is socialism because you mentioned it half a dozen different times mm-hmm. but like the f- fractioning of the left generally yes socialism is very different depending on who you talk to oh absolutely well you will have people say and it's not far wrong that socialism is like toothpaste there's so many brands of it yes <laughs> and it's, it's back to what you said you know the capitalist 
and right wing um, mindset. It's much better organised. It doesn't deviate. Um, It's focused. And they support each other. Yeah, they know what they want. in, in In their thinking and their goals. And that's why they're so powerful. That's why they last longer. That's why they hold on much longer. Because it is a much harder... Um, a way to penetrate and to to change because they're they are focused and they're united on what they're doing and they know and and if the left could get a fraction of that and certainly the left in this country could get a fraction of that I do believe we'd be in a different place um, before now. But I do believe if we think about it along them lines, we will get to a different place than we've ever been. And we'll get our opportunity. And then we must make the difference. And it must be a difference that, you know, identifies with what ordinary people would want uh, for a society of fairness and equality and lack of discrimination. Um. There's um I've been I, I don't um we haven't said much about women. We haven't spoken about women at all actually in this conversation. And you know, the trade union movement and it's identifying its identity with we have mentioned equality, uh but without mentioning women, equality means nothing. Um and so the trade union movement, um you know, is made up 50% or maybe even slightly more than 50% women. And um, we we have failed uh, the mother of our children, the mothers of our children. And uh, the equality needs and entitlements that women should have and it strikes me two things that we might finish up on here and then return to maybe something else again, Fran. Uh, I just li- I've just been listening to Joe Duffy this week. I don't know whether you get a chance to listen to this. <laughs> I certainly don't well, make well, any effort to well, listen well, to him. Well, well, there's a topic he's covering this week and I'm tuned into it by sheer accident. But it's all to do with how women have to live and, and, and what their lives are like from when they're born until effectively they die and how becoming mothers and before they become mothers their own natural development of their bodies and if that wasn't difficult enough when you think you have uh, as it were matured um, harmonially and Mentally, uh, as a young girl becoming a woman, and then a woman becoming a mother, and all the hardness, hard graft that that's about, and then you come, just as you think you're going to get some time for yourself, as it's explained, you hit this thing called the menopause, and do you get 
or can you take or will you be given HRT? There is horrendous stories that women are telling at the moment through that Joe Duffy programme. And the medical profession's denial to thousands of them into getting uh, some kind of medication that makes them human or able to remain human without thinking they're going off the deep end and how they live just one 24 hour day it's unbelievable I'm I'm, it has gripped me that us men don't really know uh, what their world is like and an awful lot of us men don't care the other one that I have struggled with for quite some time now is the, the crime of rape and how that's looked upon and the sentences that are handed down and the leniency of some of those sentences. And it has also dawned on me that many of the judges who hand down these sentences, what are they? Men. Men, predominantly, I would have thought. Men. Um, it's, it's a horrific crime. It's all the things that a human shouldn't be to another human. And it's just two things that, for quite a num- for quite a number of years. Well, the first one, it's only it's only something I came across, as I say, by being in the car and just listening to the radio. But the other one, the rape one, um, that's troubled me for many years in terms of, as the term goes, man's inhumanity to man when it's re- and when it when it also should be said man's inhumanity to woman um yeah it troubles me i we we don't have we don't have the right uh laws we don't have the right way of sending out a message to those that are going to commit that kind of crime um, it, it doesn't deter them you know um, I don't know what to say about it but I, I, I don't know why I, I've ended up on those two subjects at the end of this podcast but maybe it's just what's inside me coming out I think it's just your humanity because I was I was surprised when you said that we didn't mention women because my knee-jerk thought in the moment was I'm quite proud that we haven't mentioned women because we haven't mentioned men either. Mm-hmm. Do you know that kind of way? It's not as yeah. if we've been talking about men and forgetting no, about women. We, did we, say, we were talking about people. Yeah, yeah we did. Correct. We, we talked about communities and we did talk about people. Uh, we talked about um, uh, identity and identities uh, on the island. Uh we mentioned discrimination, we mentioned equality, uh, but as a trade unionist and kind of so many years in the trade union movement, I feel, I feel, I'm, I feel grateful 
that I actually touched on this subject of women and women's issues, you know, and how recently, you know, we've come to terms even with um, our, our um, the gay community and rights and respect for that community and the hell that they lived in and the prisons that they lived in for years. And, because, still, and still continue because, to? Because they couldn't say anything or they the fear that they had of saying anything or admitting anything. Um, but we, 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 we've started that journey, uh, I'm glad to say. Like that referendum result was was definitely libera- a form of liberation uh, for our country. Uh, the way we went about it, by the way, which also shows, you know, that we can do some good things collectively and politically when we put our minds to it. And that was the case that there was an eventual willingness to listen from a lot of things that was being heard, sorry, that was being said but not heard. And when we got our listening ears on, we realised there was a problem that that many people needed solved with a, with a, a willingness and a generosity to do it. And I'm I'm just glad that we stood up to that that challenge, you know, in the right in the right way. But it just shows you, you know, how much more we have to do when it has taken us that long to deal with that horror that's that was in our midst for so many years. No, absolutely. I mean, my understanding is that homosexuality was decriminalised in Ireland in 1993. Yeah. Which to me is just completely insane, like to think that it was that recent. Yeah. But again, uh, you know, uh, an awful crime on one hand and a great achievement in the other. You know, that it lasted so long, it was so terrible, but that it was actually changed. Yeah. And then hop, skip and jump a decade later and mm. or a decade or mm. so later and mm. not only is it legalised but it's recognised yes yes yeah and I think you, you touched on it a couple of times throughout our conversation this idea that this small island can do mm. so much and that the mm. best years are ahead of us ahead of us yeah. I've, I'd be a yeah. big big firm believer in that yeah. well I think we have to have that confidence because um, otherwise you know uh, the state of despair I'd hate to see what that looks like you know, if if we can't have that confidence that we, we're we're going to be better and it's going to be better, and and the vision is much brighter that we're entitled to have, and it's just a question of finding the way to bring it about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Christy, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm looking forward to the next one already. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there needs to be some recovery time. <laughs> no, there is, of course, absolutely. Yeah. And what I found, because I've had a couple of people on multiple times, and what I found is it's, in in one sense, as much as, as enjoyable as this conversation was, mm. there's always an element of, oh, God, get the first one out of the way. Yes. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. Because the next yeah. time we meet up, we'll hit the ground running maybe a little bit more yes. and have an even more productive conversation. Yeah, no, I've no doubt. Well, uh, the, the 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 mother day term is we're going to drill down. We're going to drill, drill yes, drill yes, absolutely into, the, into this. Yes, uh, but because it was a hope, very surface conversation yeah, to a degree, and hopefully we'll also do it in in maintaining the simple language and and the ch- simpleness of our chat, so that people out there, as I say, are 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 keen to uh, know what we're talking about and interested to hear it. Yeah, absolutely, That's, and. 
you know, th- these pod- podcasts, I, um, to see someone like yourself, um, you know, putting the time to, to have, to allow this debate to happen, uh, where otherwise it mightn't happen. Th- this is the good thing about technology when it's used usefully, you know, it can be inspiring. Uh, it can be uh, enlightening. And we don't need this uh, spin and um, fake news. Yes. At all. At all. When doing what you're doing uh, can make such a difference. I think so. Absolutely. Do you know? And I, I, I regularly encourage people and everyone listening to have their own podcast because the conversation that me and you are having will appeal to a certain type of person. Yes. But it won't appeal to somebody else. So I mm. personally think that the future in, in, in any kind of progressive change is more and more people like me as opposed to as opposed to me becoming the head of yes. the left movement yes. or any of that yeah, nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd be far better yeah, off yeah. with 10 of me in every yeah. county. Yes. All very different, yeah. all preaching essentially the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Which is, I mean, give, the, give people their voices. Absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and when they speak, listen. Yes. You are entitled to to uh, concur with what they're saying, agree with what they're saying, but you're also entitled to disagree. Yes. And, you're, and, and somebody else's opinion uh, should also get its chance, you know, to respond or to, to, give the, to, to give an alternative view or to ask that question. Um, I'm not sure how this works, uh, Fran, in the sense that your listenership, uh, do they end up coming back to you with questions that arise for them out of what you and I have talked about? And therefore, then you're left with, let's say, a menu or a, or a, a, an agenda that's dealt with going forward. Is is that how it works? The, there is, that that is certainly part of it. If anybody has mm. been uh, has if anybody has anything to add or anything that they'd like to ask, yes. I can be contacted directly on right. WhatsApp right. via oh eight nine sixty forty seven eight eight eight. Right. I usually ask my guests at the start, do they want to divulge their own? email address or anything of that nature. I didn't with yourself. Yeah, well, I'm, 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 I'm still very much in, in, well, not very much, but I'm still in public life, if you know what I mean, uh, even though I'm a retired trade unionist because I'm active. I, I'm still an activist. Uh, That's another I, thing I'm keen to talk to you about, still, activism. I still, I still conti- continue to consider myself to be an organiser. That means, you know, in being an activist... I would never lose an opportunity to to organise the union where the possibility is there to do it. Um, and I suppose the other thing is that uh, this initiative on trade unions for a unionised Ireland, that's definitely um, developing and developing very quickly. And of course, COVID stopped us in our tracks in terms of the kind of meetings and interactions we were going to have around the country with trade unionists. Yes. North and South. We launched ourselves in 2019 and we had a launch day in Dublin on the Monday and we went to Belfast on the Tuesday and replicated that. So, um, 
Yeah. Um, but technology has enabled us. And I suppose COVID has changed a few things forever because, you know, um, uh, the way people are meeting these days without meeting, you know, in person uh, is what technology was supposed to do anyway. Uh, but nobody ever got round to organising it. Yeah, COVID has been an accelerant. That's how I yes, view it. Yes. So, 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 so some very good things uh, have been experienced and learned from it. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we were really challenged by it. But there are some good things that will continue on that we have kind of nearly fallen across or stumbled across. Uh, and it's worthwhile. I tell this story about technology. I'm, I'm. Um, it, it didn't get to me while I was young enough, so I never really um, took on the challenge of technology. Even though I represented workers, uh, many workers in 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 the electronics industry. Uh, one big factory, of course, was was here in in Mead in Beliver, uh, Nippon Electrical Company, which is a Japanese company, and. Um, uh, it was peculiar, you know. I, it was a great, it was a good employer. Um, there was a very committed workforce there. Everything had to be done very hygienically. You had to, you know, uh, wear your gowns and your your net and net, oh yeah, clean net, room environment, clean room environment and all that stuff. But uh, of course, I, I suppose out of a certain. Um, lack of knowledge about about the technology and and all of that uh, which I'm glad to say didn't um, didn't uh, hinder me from representing the workers because again just going back to the trade union thing those workers I enabled them to represent themselves yes because we had some great shops here in that employment uh, that knew the industry knew what the job entailed and the challenges and uh so they really educated me and I, as it were, supported them in their dialogue with the employer and their negotiations with the employer. But I'll tell you the story and we'll definitely end on this. <laughs> I, I was there, let's say, two weeks ago and then I came back today and we had got so far with the discussions we were having. It was a rage round negotiation and it was going to be a, a three year deal, as it were. But as part of the deal and as part of the return for wage increases and all that sort of thing, the employer wanted new work organisation and new flexibilities. And um, so that's how the give and take start, you know, takes place. But in the space of the fortnight, um, and management updating me at today's meeting and what had kind of changed from two weeks previous, I sort of said to myself, what is going on here? I I was lost. I I and I remember like you take notes and all that sort of thing. And I just put the pencil down and I stopped writing. And I said, Hey folks, I have something to say. And this may sound mad. And I said, I'm saying it to all of you, because you're all employees here. And you know this game inside out. And, you know, you are uh, being trained and you are getting more experience and everything like that. But I says, I'm just going to give you this picture of how it looks to me. How technology looks to me. 
I says, my best way to describe this, I says, is it's like a runaway train out of control. And the guy controlling the train or steering the train hasn't got a clue where the train's going. And all the passengers on the train, and we are all the passengers on the train, we are on a whole load of different carriages. And this train is only gaining speed by the hour. And it's tunnelling down the railway line. And no one knows where it's going. But it's travelling at such a speed that there's going to be accidents and there's going to be crashes. And the result and experience of that crash every time it happens and when it happens will all depend on what carriage you're on and what carriage I'm on as to the consequences for you and the consequences for me. And I says, that's my best way of describing what technology looks like, looks like, how it's operating and where it's going to eventually end up. And there'll be some very good things that will come out of technology and what it's utilised for and what it's used. But that's an understanding I'm giving you as to where I am in this world of technology and, you know, how, I suppose, reluctant I am about it. And there, there was there was silence for minutes. And it's funny, um, when that company eventually left Ireland, there's only one reason it left Ireland. And it's back to the year that that company left Ireland with that loyal, skilled workforce and a good employer while they were here. The only reason they left Ireland was that 20 million profit in the year they left Ireland wasn't enough. And they went to Singapore. Yeah, for 25 million. Right. But it's funny. uh, We had a number of shop stewards in that employment. And two of them became full-time union officials. And by the way, another two became full-time union officials at Hotara Mines as well. So when you were a union official, you were looking for people who would be inspired enough and committed enough and interested enough to do the job that you were doing as a union official. And whenever you've seen those people... You encouraged them, you inspired them, you you sent them on shop steward training courses and all that sort of stuff. But it's amazing. Um, when I retired in 2013, <laughs> one of those stewards who became a union official ends up telling me that story back because he was at that meeting. No oh, yeah. That I said that. And he actually said, you know, it was an extraordinary way it was explained. But it is actually what the technology world is. Oh, very much so. A runaway train, absolutely. And I, I, like, I don't know what inspired me to say it that day, or I don't know how I put it together as a, you know, a, a picture. Yeah, that, yeah. That I, that I had inside my head. But uh, looking back at it now, you know, 
there wasn't too much wrong with it. No, absolutely not. And even, even now, I mean, we're, we're sitting down and we're discussing our ideas, mm. but there's neo-Nazis sitting down discussing oh, their ideas. Yeah, yeah. Like there's, yeah, there's as many yeah. right-leaning podcasts yeah. as there is left-leaning yeah. podcasts. Yeah. Do you know, like I know I... But you look, it's like everything else. Uh, what the world creates uh, is used for some good things and used for some terrible things. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, but hopefully we get more right out of it than we get wrong out of it, you know? Yeah, well, I think we've made a great start on our on our series, Christy. Well, I hope this technology that you, you've planted here in front of me and that's around us here, and it, it looks very simple, uh, but it's it's seemingly, it's it's good stuff. No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Christy, until the next time, it's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.